Amen. Good morning. It's great to be all together, to have all of us uh, from traditions and the raw live service together. We'll be meeting all together all summer long at 10 o'clock from now through uh, Labor Day weekend. So glad to have you worship with us. If you're worshiping with us online, glad to have you there as well. And if you're worshiping with us on Wednesday nights, our kindred service will meet on Wednesday nights this summer at seven o'clock. Glad to have you worshiping with us as well. We're in the book of Revelation, and we're close to the end of our series entitled Seven. Uh, We have ushers coming down. If you need a copy of the scriptures, uh, please raise up your hand. You can use that now, uh, and you can take that home if you'd like to. And we'd love to have God's word in your hands if you don't have that already. And in those Bibles, uh, the page we'll be on is page 1064, Revelation chapter 3. Uh, and this, these verses, these uh, passages here in Revelation have a specific purpose. At the start of the book of Revelation, John writes, the very first phrase is, the revelation of Jesus Christ. John wants to show us, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus Christ is and all that God is for us in Jesus. So he's, he's showing us Jesus, and we'll see that in each of these letters. We get a better glimpse and a greater glimpse through these seven letters of who Jesus is as God reveals him to us through these passages. And that's especially true not just for the believers then, for us as believers now as well. Because as you've experienced the wind this weekend, Uh, We also experience the wind of opposition, of persecution, and of trials as God's people. And we need to be rooted and grounded in Jesus. And so these letters are not just helping believers back then 2,000 years ago in the face of persecution and trials to be rooted in him, but they're written to help us as well to be rooted and grounded in Jesus because the letters are written for us as well. This is God's word that he's giving to us. As we've looked at these letters, each letter essentially has the same structure, and you've probably seen that as we work through it. Each letter kind of has flows in the same way, and we'll see that as we work through this passage today. Uh, But the letters themselves have parallels with one another. There are seven letters because of seven being the perfect number and kind of an idea of, of what John is saying here through the words of Jesus is meant for all of us and these are just representative of that. But even more so, the letters parallel one another. So letter one is very, literal, very similar to letter seven. And letter two written to Smyrna is very similar to the letter we look at today to the church in Philadelphia. And letters three, four, and five are similar to one another as well. So there's kind of a structure even in the laying out of the seven letters. And we've heard the name Philadelphia before. We have a city in the United States named Philadelphia, obviously the city of brotherly love. But it's named that because uh, there was a a general or a political leader who founded this city and named it for his brother or in honor of his brother. So he's actually calling it Philadelphia because he's showing love and care for his own brother. So this is the city of brotherly love and he's showing that for his brother. The city was famous for its athletic contests and its festivals, and that will come out in the letter as well as we look at it. Uh, But we'll be looking at uh, Revelation chapter three, verses seven through 13, and I think there's four truths here uh, that God wants us to learn this morning through his word. 
And the first truth found in verse seven is trust Jesus. John writes to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. And at the start of each of these letters, John tells us something about Jesus. And he wants to tell us something about Jesus because he wants to build our faith in him for a specific purpose as we'll work through this letter. And so how is John building our faith in Jesus through what he says about him? Well, first of all, he calls him holy. And that's a really important term in, in scripture to think about as we think about God, as we think about Jesus. In fact, the last couple of weeks, our men's Bible study as we get together Wednesday mornings and Thursday afternoons, we've been looking at the holiness of God and we've looked at Isaiah chapter six, really important and pivotal passage in scripture. In Isaiah chapter six, uh, the king who has been reigning for 50 years, Uzziah has just died. And there's, there's heartache in, in the nation. And on that day, God shows Isaiah a vision of heaven. And he looks into heaven and he sees the angels, he sees the seraphim flying around the throne worshiping Jesus and the seraphim are calling out, holy, holy, holy. And as they're calling out, they've got six wings, they're flying with two wings and they're covering their faces with two wings because even as angels they can't bear to look at the holiness of God. And they have two more wings with which they're covering their feet because they are creatures and God is the creator and even, even covering their feet is a sign of honor and worship. And they're, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And when this happens, everything in the temple shakes. Just imagine if that happened here, if we had seraphim saying, holy, 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 the balcony would be shaking. You might be a little bit nervous up there. The whole building would be shaking. The chairs that we're sitting in would be shaking because how, of how great and awesome Jesus is. And it's significant here as well that they say holy, holy, holy. Because nowhere else in scripture do we find an attribute or a characteristic of God repeated three times. For us when we want to emphasize something in writing we'll underline it or put it in italics or we'll put it in bold. But in, in Hebrew and in that time to emphasize something they would speak it to the third degree. They would repeat it, holy, holy, holy. And when they heard that, Isaiah himself fell down as a dead man. It happened throughout scripture. Habakkuk uh, was put to shame. Job covered his mouth when God revealed himself to him. Moses fell on his feet when he came before the burning bush. God's holiness is so awesome and in the series, R.C. Sproul emphasized this, that when Moses was speaking with God and God showed him his glory and God just showed him a little bit of his backside because Moses couldn't see God's glory and live. When Moses came down to see the people, his face was shining to such a degree that the people, the Israelites, were scared to death to look at Moses. And Moses' face was just a reflection of the backside of God's glory and holiness and still the people were afraid of it. 
We should be fearful. It should be a traumatic experience for us to encounter the holiness of God. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is holy. He's the holy one. The passage also says that he's the true one. And what that means specifically here is that he is not a false prophet. He is not a false teacher like you would find in those days. He was the true one. He was the one who spoke truth to the people. And so he was holy and he was true. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, it says that they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you'll judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So when we hear these titles, holy and true, we think about God as a God of, who is a God of judgment. And if John would have just left it at that, if the Spirit would have just told him that, the people would have run in fear. But the third description that's given in this passage is he has the keys of David. Earlier in John chapter one, it says that he has the keys of death and judgment. And what what John is saying to us, what Jesus is saying to us here is he has the keys, he can let us in. He's the one who lets people in, he's the one who keeps people out. He's the doorkeeper, he's the custodian, he's the one in charge of the keys. Uh, He's Heimdall who lets people in or keeps people out of Asgard, if you want to think about it that way. Or in other ways, he's, he's the keeper, so If we know the one who has the keys, even though we should be under judgment because he is holy and we are not, because he is true and we are not, he has the keys, he's able to let us in through his sacrifice for us. So this description gives the people hope that they and we know the holy one, the true one, the one who rules over salvation and judgment. It's telling us that he delights in us, that we're precious, his children are precious in his sight. Because remember, all these letters are written to believers, they're written to churches, they're written to church families just like Bethel, but in that time period. And what this is telling us, we should trust Jesus because he's great and good, he's reliable, he's unstoppable. You can trust him in whatever you're facing. And John goes on to write about the trials they're gonna endure, and our second truth here is we need to endure endure trials because we trust in Jesus, we can do that. Verses eight through 10. He says here, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. It just amazes me as I read those first few words of verse eight. He's saying there, I know your works. I know you. And this is, this is a statement of love. Because this church, this church of Philadelphia, as he says later in this passage, was was a small church. It was kind of an insignificant church. Not by any fault of their own because nothing in this passage says that he's rebuking them or calling them to repentance. In fact, he's saying that they're faithful and they're small and that's okay. God is, is using them. To be big doesn't mean great and to be small doesn't mean 
unuseful. And I hope that at times we at Bethel Church don't consider just because we're big that we're great in God's eyes. And we don't live in pride because of our size because God calls us to faithfulness. He doesn't necessarily call us, first of all, to numbers. And so he's saying to them, hey, you're, you're faithful even in, in your size. And I, I know you, I know your faithfulness to me and to my word. And what he's saying to them here is their faithfulness to the word opens doors. Because they're faithful to him, he's faithful to them in providing them opportunities to tell others of who he is, to tell others who Jesus is. And he set before them an open door that no one's able to shut, the door to heaven, the door to salvation, the door to opportunities to speak of Jesus and bring people in to this kingdom because they have kept his word and they haven't denied his name. He knows them, he knows us. He knows us in our faithfulness and he will continue to use us as we're faithful to him and to his word. He also knows our enemies and he speaks of that in verse nine. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow before you. It's a difficult time to be a believer in the first century because most believers were Jews by ethnicity. And so when they trusted Christ, their brothers and sisters, their parents, their relatives, everyone they knew who didn't trust Jesus would shun them. All their relationships were gone. Their livelihood, because the people you live with and know you're related to will no longer come to your businesses, will no longer support you. They were broken off. Those doors for them were closed. And it's even more difficult for us, for anyone as Christians, when as believers, those closest to us are also our enemies. They've turned on Jesus and they've turned on us and that's what they're experiencing here. And Jesus wants to give them confidence in that. He says that even in that, hey, I'm gonna show these people who don't believe in me that you are faithful to me as Christians. And they are one day gonna come and bow before you. And I'm not sure whether that's now in this world, whether he means specifically that people who haven't yet trusted in Jesus but are Jews will someday trust in Jesus and so will admit that they were wrong, whatever it is, he's saying that he's gonna do some work there. And he's also saying this to us. When we feel like other doors are, are closed to us, when people and even family and friends have betrayed us, there's one door that's always open. And it's the door to the presence of God in, in Jesus Christ. He is always there. He has always loved us. He is beside us. So when that happens, we can trust that God is good and we can endure. And we can endure because he keeps us. Verse 10 says this. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. What he means by this phrase, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, is because you've looked at Jesus who endured. And scripture tells us that. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and the shame and now stands at the right hand of God. 
Jesus gives us the ability and the example to endure in the face of trial, in the face of persecution. And just as the Father kept Jesus in that, he will keep us as well as we cling to him and as we hold on to him. Psalm 121 really kind of says this to me well, if you have a minute to just turn over there. Psalm 121 is uh, the sound of music psalm. It's the psalm that the nuns quote to uh, Julie Andrews, Maria. And it's got such a beautiful picture of what God does to keep us. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? That help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps you, who keeps Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. He keeps us by redeeming us, by making us his children. Verse five, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. Not only is he our redeemer, he's our companion. He is always with us, next to us. And then the psalmist goes on to write, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He is our protector as our keeper. He holds fast to us. He keeps us strong in him as we trust him. And we can trust God as we endure trials because he is our keeper. He knows us. He knows our enemies and he knows how to keep us. And he calls us in verse 11 to hold fast to him as well. That's the third truth in this passage. He says in verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. As you look at that, as you think about that, you get the idea of the athletic contest here. That these people in Philadelphia would understand what a crown is because only the victor gets a crown. And those who are disqualified, those who don't compete well, who don't win the race, who don't hold on and hold fast, uh, they don't receive the crown. And so he knew that they would understand that idea. And this idea of holding on or holding on to a baton specifically comes into my mind as I I think about this. I I love relay races, especially love the four by 100. And the four by 100, you've got four people running and they're passing a baton every 100 yards, and if that baton is dropped, you're probably disqualified. If you leave your lane, you're probably disqualified as well. And so he's calling us as Christians to hold fast, to hold fast to the gospel. And this uh, becomes especially true as I think about the gospel. Uh, Someone who has taught me more than anything about the gospel, Pastor Tim Keller passed away just 10 years ago, I mean 10 days ago. And a number of years ago, in fact, four months after 9-11, I had a class with him, a doctor of ministry class. And not only did he talk about New York City, he planted a church in New York City and pastored there for a number of years. But he talked about the gospel as well and the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel really can be summarized as grace and truth. And sometimes our struggle as Christians is we focus on one or the other, and we miss the gospel, we, we drop the baton, we don't hold fast to the truth. And we try to explain it uh, this way. 
First of all, sometimes as Christians, we hold on to grace without truth. And if you think about it, you think about the younger son and the story of the prodigal son. He took everything he had and he went off and he lived all as he wanted to with no regard. He thought, boy, I'm, I'm okay. I've got my inheritance. I don't need anything else. I can do whatever I want. And we can live in grace and we can live in, in love and we can say, oh, all that matters is love. It doesn't matter what you do. Love is God and, and God is love. And so it doesn't matter what you do, but we're not holding on to the gospel in that, are we? Because love without truth and grace without truth isn't the gospel. You're, you're missing part of the gospel. But on the other end, we can do the opposite. And I've come out of this environment as well, where it's all truth and all holiness and all works, and the older brother was that way. The older brother thought, well, if I just do my duty, if I just keep uh, everything I need to, if I please my father by obeying him all the time, then I'll get the feast, then I'll get everything I want. And we hold on to truth, but, but no grace. The older brother had no grace for his younger brother. No grace for how his father, no understanding of grace for how his father loved him. And, and truth without grace is not the gospel either because we, we miss out on the gospel through that. And what Jesus tells us, and I, I love this as, as Keller had these phrases, said for the younger brother, hey, you're sinful, but I'm more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. I might think I'm sinful, but no, I'm, I'm a far greater sinner than I ever thought. But for the older brother, we can say as well, Christ is a far greater savior than I ever dared imagine. Even my good works are filthy rags in this sight because they don't earn anything for him. And God wants us not just to find a middle way between grace and truth. Sometimes we, we love people but we don't tell them the truth. Sometimes we tell them the truth but we don't love them and we, we do half and half or 50-50, no. The gospel is what Jesus is. Jesus is full of grace and truth. And that's hard. That's, that's hard to live that way. When you wanna love someone who disagrees with you and you don't wanna deny your faith, you don't wanna deny you what you believe, which I've seen some people do, and sacrifice the gospel for a relationship but you also don't wanna just blast them with the truth and say you're wrong, you're a sinner, you're, you're going to hell because you lose the gospel there as well. God calls us to hold fast to the gospel, to hold fast to grace and truth. And he wants us to stay in our land. You can be disqualified not just for dropping a baton, but for moving to the left or right, for stepping out of your lane. God calls us to, to live in line with the truth of the gospel. In fact, that's what Paul said to Peter in Galatians. When Peter was acting one way with Gentiles and then another way when the Jews would come around, Paul confronted Peter. Can you imagine that? Paul and Peter having a disagreement? Wow, there would be explosion there. But Paul said to Peter, hey, you're not living in line with the truth of the gospel. The gospel isn't just the ABC of the Christian life. Admit, believe, confess. The gospel is the whole of Christian life. It's not just what we believe to be saved, it's how we live as well. 
And God calls us to hold fast to his word, calls us to hold fast to his gospel, to hold fast to what he tells us is true. Because that's how we're gonna survive in this world when the world tells us differently. So we've learned so far, trust Jesus, endure trials, hold fast, and then finally, overcome through the name. It says in verse 12 and 13, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my new name. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He always ends the letters that way because he wants Christians, believers, those of us who has ears to listen. And what he's saying here is in these kind of four pictures, he's just saying one thing to us. He's not saying four different things, but he's saying one thing. And he's telling us how Jesus has identified with us. And each of these points here makes the point that God has identified with us in Christ. We're so one with him that he has given us his name. And he has given us something better than that. It says in Isaiah 56, 5, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Wow, to be a part of a family, that's, that's a great identification, but he's gonna give us something even greater than that. A name that will never be cut off. And the very last verse in Ezekiel says this, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. And he's identifying with us and identifying us with that city because the whole purpose of scripture from Genesis to Revelation was, would it be that God is with us and we are with him. And so the name of the city, the final name of the final city is the Lord is there. And we are there with him because we have the name of the Lord on us. And it's an intimate relationship, it's, it's a new status that we have. It's, we share in his character, we share in his power. We have genuine membership in the community of the redeemed. And he'll not let our souls be lost. We need to think about that, think about it specifically as, as a family of God of this church. I wanna show a slide here, uh, a red slide, we talked about it earlier in our preparation. When some people around the world see this, and this is something that's identifiable around the world, immediately something comes to their mind. Not just the red color, not just uh, the image in the middle, but the letters Y-N-W-A. If you took out your phone and looked at your search engine and typed in Y-N-W-A, every single response on the first page would be, you'll never walk alone, and the English football club, Liverpool. That's their anthem, their, their song. You might remember the song. The song was first written for the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical Carousel back in 1945. But in 1963, a, a Liverpool band, Jerry and the Pacemakers, recorded a cover for that song. And that was the time of the British invasion. And just like the Beatles, who were from Liverpool, were invited across the pond to sing on the Ed Sullivan Show, so were Jerry and the Pacemakers. They were invited over in 1964, uh, to sing on the Ed Sullivan Show. It just happened that the Liverpool football team 
was touring the United States and playing as well, playing soccer. And so they were in the audience. And Jerry Marsden of Jerry and the Pacemakers invited them up on the stage when they sang this song. And afterwards, the coach, Bill Shankly, said, Jerry, you have yourself a team, but we have ourselves a song. And every time Liverpool plays, both at the start of the game and at the end of the game, the fans will sing, you'll never walk alone. It's, it's incredible to listen to. In fact, it, it bonds the team and the fans so together that uh, for one period of time over three years, 68 games, Liverpool did not lose a home game because their home turf and their fans were so bonded with them. And I, I think about that, especially I think about that as we, as we work through trials in our lives, that as a church, we can be so much more bound together in, in solidarity and oneness and commitment to one another than an English soccer club that's known throughout the world that people fear. It's, it's funny, I've traveled around the country, I've been walking down the street in Franklin, Tennessee with a t-shirt on, and somebody honked and they got on their speaker on their truck and said, YNWA. I mean, it's, it's so true, but that could even be more true for us as Christians, as Bethel Church, because these letters are written to churches, not to individuals. God wants us to be such a family that when we see another brother or sister in Christ from Bethel, there's an immediate love, there's an immediate connection there's immediate care because we're living life with one another. And one of the ways we want to specifically emphasize that over the summer and, and kicking off in the fall is our, our small groups are changing their names to life groups because we want you to be transformed together. We want you to live life together. And the best way to do that is through a life group. But to, to be one like that, to be one in Christ, to love one another, encourage one another, serve one another, that's what Jesus is telling these people in Philadelphia. He's, he's saying you're one. So trust Jesus because with Jesus you'll never walk alone. Endure trials because in your enduring trials you never walk alone. You'll always have your brothers and sisters in Christ with you along with Jesus. He's saying hold fast to my word because you'll never walk alone in that. And finally, overcome through the name, the name of Jesus, because you'll never walk alone. You will be with him and with your brothers and sisters in Christ forever. Never will be true for me and for you.